Welcome everybody, Richard Krauss coming to you from Isolation Studios in downtown Toronto with three more film recommendations for you to pass the time with. I know we are all stuck inside, we're watching more television, more movies, more videos online, whatever it is, however it is, you get your entertainment, we're probably doing a lot more of it than usual. So I've been poking around, thinking about movies that I love that I haven't seen for a while and I thought that I would share some more of them with you today. First up, one you've probably seen, but maybe not for a little while. Before Dirty Harry, Clint Eastwood was a star. He had worked his way up from playing uncredited characters in B-movie turkeys like 1955's Revenge of the Creature to supporting roles in everything from a Francis the Talking Mule comedy to a string of westerns and war pictures. Television's Rawhide made him a household name in America, and his trio of spaghetti westerns with Sergio Leone made him an international star, but it took an urban vigilante movie to make him a legend. Loosely based on real-life San Francisco police inspector Dave Toshi, one of the investigators of the Zodiac murders, Dirty Harry is the story of the San Francisco Police Department inspector Harry Callahan, that's played by Clint Eastwood, charged with bringing a serial killer to justice. Callahan lives by his own code of ethics and is unafraid to bend the rules to get the bad guy. He's generally cool, calm and collected, but he took cool to a whole new level early in the film. Seeing a bank robbery in process, Callahan approaches the scene without waiting for backup. Pointing his 44 Smith & Wesson Model 29 Magnum revolver in the robber's face, he says the words, written by future Apocalypse Now screenwriter John Milius, that made Clint Eastwood a superstar. Uh-uh. I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, to tell you the truth in all this excitement, I've kind of lost track myself. But Ian, this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off. You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Dirty Harry became Eastwood's signature role, but it almost didn't happen. Written for an older man, the part was offered to Robert Mitchum, John Wayne, Burt Lancaster, and Frank Sinatra, who had to pass because a wrist injury prevented him from convincingly holding the weighty 44 Magnum. Then it was put forward to Steve McQueen, who turned it down, saying, I'm only doing authority my way, and Paul Newman, who thought it was too right-wing for him, but he suggested Clint Eastwood and it was the perfect marriage of character and actor. Jay Cox of Time Magazine wrote that Eastwood gave his best performance so far, tense, tough, full of implicit identification with the character, but not all critics loved the movie. Roger Ebert condemned the film for its fascist moral position, even though he grudgingly admitted that it was well made. Not so with Pauline Kael, the doyenne of film criticism. She called Dirty Harry a right-wing fantasy that is a remarkably single-minded attack on liberal values and labeled it fascist medievalism. A few years ago, I asked former Time film critic and Clint Eastwood biographer, literally the man who wrote the book about Clint Eastwood, the late Richard Schickel, how important the Do I Feel Lucky speech from Dirty Harry was to Clint Eastwood's career. I think the lines that were crucial in making him a superstar were, you know, in Dirty Harry where he walks across the street and he says, you know, all this excitement, you know, like, 
I'll tell you the truth and all this excitement, I don't know, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But that's a moment, it's a very commanding moment, you know. And it's Clinton, this sort of old, wrinkly sports jacket. And, and the way he strolls across, he's got this humongous gun in his hand. And uh, it's just the moment where, I mean, he's already a star. There's no question about that. But in that moment, the command of the screen, the command of himself, the, the strange humor of it, which is a real Clint kind of sense of humor working in that scene. Just great, you know. I mean, that's the moment. That's the moment. There's no question. This guy is going to be, for a long time, a major, major star. So I think, in terms of his career, that's the more important. That's the one that made him an icon? I think. Yeah. Began the process. You know, become an icon overnight with yeah. one role. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think that's an, the iconic moment in his career. It's just a movie that projected him out of the ranks of stars into the much smaller rank of superstars, you know, absolutely. Next up, something a little different. More a character study than a traditional narrative, Inside Lewin Davis lives up to its name by painting a vivid portrait of its main character. Once you get inside Lewin's head, you probably won't want to hang out with the guy in real life, but you will not regret spending two hours with him in this movie. Lewin Davis, played by Oscar Isaac, is an ambitious folk singer trying to make his voice heard in the center of the folk universe, 1961 Greenwich Village. He's essentially homeless, he sofa surfs, imposes himself on an ever-dwindling list of friends as he tries to deal with a cold New York winter, a shady record company, and a wayward cat. Also, a sovereign relationship and his career frustrations add to that the haunting memory of a former musical partner, and you have an abstract parable about artistic temperament and the quest for success. Inside Lewin Davis opens with a song, the folk standard Hang Me, Oh Hang Me, performed in its entirety. It telegraphs that the music won't be relegated to the background in this film, that it will be telling part of the story. I asked Oscar Isaac about performing all his own music in the film. It's definitely a very vulnerable position to be in, but, you know, I was ready for it. I was ready for the challenge. I was like, you know, I, I knew I could play Lewin, and I knew what was required, which was these songs. Mm -hmm. But the songs are amazing, beautiful, old, old folk songs that have been passed down. So the songs are great. Um, I'm working with T-Bone. He's going to tell me if I'm sounding false. Right. And he's building my confidence throughout. And Joel and Ethan are filming it. So it, it, in a way, it's like how you'd have to really try hard to really fuck that up. Right. And were they done, the, and I know we're on the last question, uh, were they done live in the film? Yeah, all, all the music was, was done live, except for, I think, two songs, that, because uh, the Punch Brothers weren't around, they're the ones that sing the old triangle. Right, right. And so that, that was playback, and I think there might have been uh, one other other thing, but all of, all of my songs uh, definitely were done live. It's, uh, you know, the playing and the singing. On stage, we see Lewin at his best. He's an angel-voiced troubadour whose passionate performances contain the intensity with which he lives his offstage life. Isaac, in his first leading role after smaller parts in Sucker Punch, Drive, and W.E., has a built-in broodiness that services the character well. He's a sullen guy, always borrowing money or asking a favor without offering much in return except his talent. 
It's a carefully crafted but subtle portrait of the rocky terrain between brilliance and the rest of society. Inside Lewin Davis is a fictional look at the vibrant Greenwich Village folk scene. Imagine the cover of the freewheeling Bob Dylan come to life. And sharp-eyed folkies will note the not-so-coincidental similarities between the people Lewin meets and the real-life people like Tom Paxton, Albert Grossman, and Mary Travers. But this is not a history lesson. It's a feel. It gives us an under-the-covers look at the struggles and naked ambition it takes to get noticed. Joel Cohen said that the film doesn't really have a plot. That concerned us at one point, he says, so that's why we threw the cat in. Now, the cat shares many scenes with Isaac. Trouble is, he doesn't like cats very much. I asked him about that. No, I'm not afraid of cats. Just a cat put me in the hospital once. <laughs> How so? It bit me. <laughs> I mean, uh, 90% of cat bites are highly infectious. So next morning I woke up with a red line going up my arm. It had gotten in my lymphatic system. It bit my hand. Wow. So I had to go to the hospital. I was there for like two days. This sounds serious. I didn't. Uh, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, yeah. I was like, uh, that was like, you know, five, five years ago, six years ago. So then you cut to the Cohen set, and they're like, we've got five cats, <laughs> and we're gonna attach them to you, and you're gonna run as fast as you can into the subway. So it was daunting. Could, could you be like, could it be a lemming? Could it be <laughs> anything else? <laughs> exactly. A little a, terrier. A yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And finally, a film from John Favreau that is more Iron Chef than Iron Man. In Chef, Favreau, who also wrote, directed, produced, and stars in the film, is Carl Casper, a former hotshot cook, now a divorced workaday chef, who spends so much time pumping out his boss's high-end but unimaginative menu, he has no time to spend with his son. When a famous restaurant critic stings Carl with a review that slaps him for a, quote, lack of imagination and suggests, quote, his dramatic weight gain can only be explained by eating all the food that is sent back to the kitchen, end quote, he is sent on a path to regaining his passion, a journey that begins behind the wheel of a food truck. It's nice to see Favreau shelve the CGI of his biggest hits and return to the human heartbeat of films like Elf and Swingers. Shelf is a crowd pleaser that combines its ingredients in a familiar but really delicious way. It's somewhat predictable, but like comfort food, it's warmly inviting. Favreau and his sidekick, sous chef Martin, played by John Leguizamo, are a natural culinary comedy team with an easy chemistry that gives the movie much of its charm. Sofia Vergara and Scarlett Johansson, as Carl's ex and current flame respectively, both hand in spirited performances, and after a brief pasta seduction scene, it's clear Carl has figured out that the old saying, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach, applies to women as well. The restaurant cooking scenes in the film are very realistic, so I asked John Favreau if he had ever spent time working in restaurants. Here's what he said. I had bartended uh, through college and, and when I was starting off as, a, as an actor in Chicago, uh, so New York and Chicago, I'd done it. But I'd never been really the back of the house. But I'd, I'd started to become aware through reading Kitchen Confidential by Bourdain, by mm -hmm. Anthony Bourdain. I was quite charmed by that book years ago. And when I and the chef culture has really taken off here in the states. I don't know what it's like uh, up there. Oh, absolutely here too. Yeah, it's big too. Yeah, and so the the idea of these chefs as characters and 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 you know they're 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 kind of like rock stars now, but but they didn't start off in the business to be rock stars. They kind of started off to be hidden in the back. 
uh, and now they're being pulled out to, into the spotlight, and it, it makes for a very interesting uh, character. Um, but I, you know, I, I had been really intrigued by that whole world, and it, it seemed quite romantic. And then when I, when I decided to use that as a backdrop for this film, I just wanted to learn everything about it. And what I found from chefs was that they're very unsatisfied with how Hollywood depicts their culture. Mm-hmm. They never get it right. They always roll their eyes at it. It's always like a... How so? They, they, scrub, they scrub all the, the language out and the culture out, and they tend to homogenize it. Uh, it's very ethnically diverse, the, the kitchen culture here, especially Latino. Yeah. Hollywood never gets any of that right. And so when I worked with Roy Choi, who was the chef who trained me, you know, he, he said, let's, let's get it. I'll work with you if we, if we really do this properly. And so he sent me off for culinary training, uh, you know, very traditional French culinary training. But then after that, I started working in his kitchens, where not a lot of English is spoken. Right. <laughs> and I really got pulled in over those months until I worked my way up to the hotline. And, and I was part of the, the kitchen staff, and I think the film reflects that. Well, that's it for today from Isolation Studios. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Richard Krauss. Remember, wash your hands, stay inside, Check out some of these movies. We can get through this one movie at a time. We'll talk to you again soon.